generic recommendations don't work. And um, it leads to people become quite despondent if you're trying to lose weight or maintain a healthy diet, but the, the generic recommendations are not working. And there is no alternative. You keep the people keep trying the same recommendations and don't really see the output. And what we're seeing now is some evidence coming out that um, there are differences in the way people respond to food. So two people may have the same amount of carbs or the same meal, in fact, entirely the same meal, but their body responds in, in a different way. I founded the BWA Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. In today's episode, we look at personalized nutrition. Now, for many of you that have listened to my podcast for a while or followed my work, you know that I really believe that nutrition should be tailored to the individual and that we are all unique in our own ways. So not one size fits all. And this is where the really interesting concept of personalized nutrition comes in. Now, it can be a minefield when this is mentioned because there can be many ways that you can personalize your nutrition. However, in today's episode, we're going to be really looking at the modifiable risk factors that can help and how you can navigate your own journey to personalized nutrition. We look at the new gadgets coming out and we also look at what the future of nutrition looks like. To help me explore this, I speak to Dr. Kotha Hajat, who is a doctor in public health nutrition and she has focused a large part of her career helping promote healthy lifestyle choices and preventing chronic health illness. She has a real interest in nutrition and is working currently on a really exciting project for personalized nutrition. So I am thrilled to have her on today. I really hope you enjoy it and do check the show notes because I will be putting lots of useful links about the things we discussed in today's episode. Dr. Kotha, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. How are you today? Thank you so much for coming on. I'm very well, Sarah, and thanks for inviting me. So you are um, an expert in the field of public health, and we have got you on today to speak about a whole realm of things. You have a very large interest in work within public health and nutrition, but you've also recently started working, and I spoke to you last week about personalised nutrition, which has always been something that I've been hugely fascinated in and I think it can be quite a confusing term for so many people so I'm really excited to talk about the new research emerging and what it's all about but before we get into that I would love you to just introduce yourself and tell about your phenomenal background to date as a doctor. That's great thanks Aran. So I started off as a regular doctor seeing patients in what we call general medicine and really wanted to do something a bit more upstream in uh, prevention, stopping people getting ill in the first place. So also trained in public health. 
and did a PhD in epidemiology so I could actually understand what the research was telling me when I was reading papers um, and I knew how to do the research. So my work since then has focused on the prevention of chronic disease and lifestyle risk factors, including diet, physical activity, smoking, alcohol, so quite a broad area in uh, mental health as well, which we've talked about a little bit. And um, so how do we do that? Uh, we work with governments and write policies, change the environment that people live in. We look at behaviour change models to really try to get people to, to nudge them to um, healthier lifestyles. And increasingly, we use health technology to really, particularly in people's homes, to really get them to be able to monitor their own health and take a little bit of accountability for their own health as well, which is what they want. They want ownership of their health. So it's more of a, a two-way partnership. So, um, so yes, we've been, uh, the term personalised medicine has been around for a very long time and we've been looking at things like genomics to improve personalised medicine. Um, but more recently, the term personalised nutrition has come about and uh, there's a project I'm, I'm involved in personally that touches on um, personalised nutrition as well. So really happy to be here to talk about that. Absolutely thrilled to have you on. I mean, you cover such an important area of health because especially for you as well, being a doctor, so many people go to see a doctor when they've something's already happening. So when they need to be treated yeah. for an illness. And what we I feel like we don't do here in England is actually look at the preventative ways of how we can actually optimise our health before it gets to that stage and we need to go and see a doctor. And all of those modifiable risk factors that you just mentioned, such as smoking, nutrition being one of them, exercise, stress, you know, there's so many factors which influence actually, you know, our overall state of health. But that isn't spoken about that much. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's not more emphasis on the preventative side of, uh, of our health? So when medicine started out, that was literally all we did is prevention. So things like sanitation, making the environment cleaner and more conducive to health. And then suddenly technologies came around, treatments, new medicines, and the shift focused to hospitals and treating people once they're ill. Um, you can imagine if you put money into a, a, a project that deals with prevention, it takes maybe five, 10, 15 years to then see the, the output and the benefit from that, the return on investment, I guess. Whereas if you build a hospital, you see that return on investment immediately. And so it, it is a little bit that the investment goes into those short term projects rather than the longer term um, output. Um, and mm. so this year, because healthcare has shifted quite considerably, the way we deliver healthcare has shifted. It's moved more towards people in their homes, including when they need to see a doctor. But um, the health technology companies have really seen a huge boost this year in terms of prevention. So we've seen a lot of tools and resources now to educate, to give people the ability to monitor and give um, feedback on things like nutrition, physical activity, even you know more um, sophisticated ways of measuring um, how we're exercising, whether we're stressed, whether our body's stressed and strain, measuring um, heart rate variability and some other measures, mental health, 
as well has mm -hmm. had a big focus this year. And there have been quite a few interesting things in um, the personalised nutrition space as well, in terms of tools and resources, which we can discuss a little bit more. So shall we talk about what personalised nutrition is, first of all? Yes, exactly. So can you give us a bit of a brief description about personalised nutrition? Because for me, being a nutritionist, you know, I see one side of that, but it's huge. You see, from a consumer point of I guess if you type into a podcast on Apple Podcasts, personalised nutrition, you get a whole host of different angles of personalised nutrition. So I'd love for you to be able to actually explain what we're going to talk about today and the other areas that other people might have come across as well. Yeah, so conventionally we've given recommendations about um, how many grams of salt and carbs and fat people should be eating and more of a one-size-fits-all approach mm. and actually that works for some people probably wouldn't work for you and me because actually we're not the kind of average size and the research studies haven't been done necessarily on people like us mm. doesn't take into account many factors such as your genetics your microbiome how physically active you are um, there might be some other factors, other illnesses, etc. And so what we see is for a lot of people, it doesn't work. These generic recommendations don't work. And um, it leads to people become quite despondent if you're trying to lose weight or maintain a healthy diet, but the, the generic recommendations are not working. And there is no alternative. You keep the People keep trying the same recommendations and don't really see the output. And what we're seeing now is some evidence coming out that um, there are differences in the way people respond to food. So two people may have the same amount of carbs or the same meal, in fact, entirely the same meal, but their body responds in, in a different way. So their cholesterol levels, etc., may respond differently. Their blood glucose levels may respond differently and their um, likelihood to develop diseases such as diabetes may be different even if they're eating the same types of food. And so really what we're talking about is um, using tools and new research to allow more precise recommendations for individuals, so having tailored recommendations. And that may be by groups. Um, so for example, it might be a disease group, so diabetics might have very specific dietary recommendations. It might be for individuals based on their physical activity levels or their weight, ethnicity, or it, or it may go a bit deeper into um, measuring their microbiome, for example. I know you've had um, Professor Tim Spector on uh, to talk about his work uh, on the microbiome, and his work has shown that uh, people respond actually very differently because of the difference in um, the microbiota that they have. And that um, reflects also the glucose handling, so how much their glucose spikes after a meal. depends partly on your microbiome as well. Um, it could depend on your um, genetic makeup as well. And, and so now we have the tools to measure some of these um, traits that really are very personalised. And then there's another term that I'll throw in, but I'm certainly not the expert. I'll just mention it because um, people will have heard of it, which is functional medicine, which is really looking at 
multiple causes of um, going to the same disease. So if we take diabetes, functional medicine really tries to drill down to the root causes of um, what has caused that disease. Now that's a very emerging field and there isn't much, well, the, the evidence is emerging and the same level of evidence we would normally use for uh, say for making recommendations on diet, it's not there yet for some of these areas. It's definitely there for um, the microbiome and some of the um, genetic information as well. I'm going to go into a little bit about the tools that, that people can actually use as well. So there are, for example, um, testing kits that you can use at home to see if your microbiome can be altered using prebiotics, probiotics. There are companies that do measure your uh, nutrigenome. Um, there are a few areas that are evidence-based in the nutrigenome space, not all of them by any means, but they, it may be useful for some people. Um, and for many listeners, could you are, explain what that is? For the... um, so it's, re it's not really, yeah, it's not really my area, but it's really how um, if you have um, genetic differences, they may be impacted by the types of food you eat and yeah. uh, we call it epigenetics. So it's how your environment um, affects your um, genetic makeup to actually affect your how you handle food. So there are a few um, uh, examples where we that has been proven to be the case. Fantastic. Um, and, and so there are many, um, so that's the... Um, kind of uh, biometric side, but there's also, um, there are many other aspects of personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, technology plays a big role in how we actually monitor and um, change and, uh, how we eat. So um, there are some tools called, well, I'll mention a few um, names of tools that are actually quite useful. Um, one is um, Noom. I don't know if you've come across that. And a, a similar one is um, Second Nature. So they use behavioral techniques to really shift people's understanding of food and nutrition and how we eat and, and more importantly, why we eat. Because we don't always eat because we're hungry. We quite often mm -hmm. don't eat when we're hungry. We eat yeah. for emotional issues or for comfort reasons mm -hmm. or boredom or many other reasons. So it really uses behavioral techniques such as the ones used for neuro-linguistic programming or CBT to really change how people uh, react with food, change people's relationship with food. And those are actually shown to be very effective at leading to long-term changes in, um, in uh, having a healthy diet. So 80 to 90% success rate. So those are fantastic. And um, the NHS that's actually huge. uses those as well. It is, yeah. And so, and that's really what I would fully support for your listeners as well. We really need to have a healthy relationship with our food and understand why we maybe um, don't have, don't eat in an ideal way. Like I certainly don't. Um, so, you know, what are the triggers and what what is that about? So we can really can have a better um, control on that. Um, there are some other uh, apps and technology as well, which some people find useful to know, to measure things like uh, the nutritional intake, the precise nutritional intake. 
um, for some people it's a bit um, anxiety inducing so they may actually mm. um, become a bit obsessed by all the, the data and the numbers coming out of some of these tools but a couple of the good ones are um, the food switch app which uh, you allows you to scan the QR code on something that you're buying and it tells you the nutritional content and allows you to choose it suggests some healthier alternatives and uh, so that's a nice way to shift people's um, uh, kind of particularly if you have a kind of if you're hungry and you're and you're shopping and uh, you suddenly have an urge to buy something that isn't as healthy as you want it to be that's a good way to to control the urge and um, I saw actually um, that Snapchat has the same function, which is fantastic. So you can, you I didn't can know just about this one. Cam- yeah, uh, it's amazing what you learn from younger people. Huh? Um, <laughs> that I've learned <laughs> from younger people. So you you press the the screen and and uh, uh, on the QR code, and it tells you what's in the in the uh, food. Um, there's a very nifty plate called the Smart Plate, which has different components, and you put your carbs in one and uh, etc. And it takes a photo of the food and tells you precisely the portion size and how many carbs, etc. and calories are in there. <laughs> and some, again, some people find that um, useful. Um, uh, continuous, so there are a lot of wearables and sensors. Uh, let's talk a little bit about those that people can use at home. Um, still, again, mm-hmm. falls within the personalized nutrition space. Um, continuous glucose monitoring has come onto the scene have you heard about that yes I have actually and I've seen the devices but um yeah I have heard about it have you used it have you used it yourself I have once and it was at a conference is when I used it so I've not used it kind of in my own home environment but I did use it when I was at a conference um, so I've used it because I like to just try out any tech that I talk about. So, <laughs> um, and I actually found it very useful and very helpful. And so what it doesn't, it's not going to diagnose any diseases, but mm. um, if you, again, coming back to um, Professor Tim Spector's study on um, how our blood glucose spikes after we eat, it does vary quite a lot between people. And so it can actually, if, if you've moved beyond the, the general recommendations, it can actually help you to pick and choose which foods may be better for you to control your average glucose during the day. Obviously, there is a risk if you become a little bit too um, worried or, or anxious about any, because our blood glucose obviously does um, spike. It would wax mm. and wane. Uh, but unless there are severe spikes or, or severe lows, then it can really help us to um, select better how we eat and maybe when we eat as well. Um, and would you be able to talk a bit about a bit about why it's it's not good when we have such severe glucose spikes, so people can really understand the importance behind, you know, the gadget that you're talking about. Yeah. So the glucose spikes. Um, so. When we get a glucose spike, it causes an insulin release. And actually, if you're trying to lose weight, then you want, um, and, and for general health, you want your insulin to be quite uh, at a continuous level and not to have spikes. In um, 
the PREDICT study, it showed that people whose glucose um, dips quite considerably after a few hours after they eat. So they, the, these are the people who have highs and then severe lows mm. of their glucose. They tend to be hungrier more frequently and snack a lot more and um, on average eat 300 calories more per day. Now you can imagine over a long period of time if you are eating 300 calories more per day, that obviously is going to be a struggle if you are trying to lose weight. Mm. And so it can give you a level of precision in your own, uh, how you, how your body reacts to the food that, that can be useful. Now, some people may find it useful, others may, may not find it useful or may need some um, help in interpreting what the, the findings mean. Uh, but the uh, companies that um, provide these tools, they actually, they do give some support um, with the tools as well. Mm. Um, other sensors, so, or other types of technology, um, um, VR and AR, virtual reality, augmented reality, is coming onto the scene now as well. Um, I haven't tried that yet. I should. How is that coming uh, onto the scene? But... I want to know how virtual reality is coming <laughs> on for personalized nutrition. I'm learning something here. I love it. Um, it can help with um, habit change. So it's been used for a while for uh, mental health um, conditions and really helping people to shift their habits. That's when they're using it to put people on uh, in the sea and on a boat because that's apparently meant to help calm with mental health um, illness so people that can be very stressed or anxious if you're this is what I've seen anyway whether it's true or not I don't know but um but then they put them onto the virtual reality and they take them to the sea on a boat or something and actually it's meant to have quite a calming effect regarding their mental health so that's where I've heard of it but I've not heard about it in nutrition yeah it's coming into the space now um so these are still very th- these um tools are very mm. new and so some of them are experimental but um there are some early adopters trying them out <laughs> right now. And then in your home, there are tools like um, smart fridges that can actually monitor what food you have in your fridge and um, even order a shopping or make a shopping list for you of healthy products. Wow. Um, not sure if it links with Snapchat or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are, um, let's talk a little bit about the type of um food now as well so we're we're moving beyond um the usual food that we we find uh plant-based nutrition is obviously very popular Mm -hmm. um and um there's a there are a few um initiatives to provide or produce uh healthier uh types of protein so um Plant-based meats, obviously, we all know about beyond meat and impossible meat. Mm. Uh, but there are other ways to produce meat, such as cell culture lines, so cell-cultured meats. Mm. I don't know if you've seen those. Those are already um, being marketed in some restaurants around the world. I have seen them, yeah. Uh, would you, uh, I, I did a little poll asking people if they would eat those, and most people said no. Would you be able to describe said, no. to our listeners exactly what that is, like how it's made? Yeah, I, I actually don't know the exact technology, but they take a cell line of, um, of say, uh, muscle from a lamb, 
and they actually reproduce the same muscle in a lab. So it's still lamb. It's still the same meat that you would get from a lamb. And so you'd still make the, the joint that you ha would have or the, the muscle area of muscle that the, you would eat from the lamb, but it's created in um, a lab rather than on a farm. And so the advantage of that is that you can control the fat content. Um, it's much better for the environment. So mm -hmm. a lot of this is for also, there's a dual purpose. It's both health and for sustainability and um, climate change purposes. Um, it's so interesting there actually are... because I was on the Nutritional Society course today and there was a huge as huge um, talk on exactly that and also around um, producing plant-based, well, algae oils, but replacing them with officials and because of the I'm gonna I'm not gonna say this correctly because I've only just listened to it so I've not kind of reread my notes properly but because there's a lot of farm fishing going on at the moment if you look at the um what they're actually eating they're not eating the marine algae as much as they used to be because they're being farmed with a lot more protein um and their feeds are very different so actually their longer chain omega-3s which is why we eat them for the health reasons are much more depleted than they were say 50 years ago so they're now looking at this new research of actually using and developing in a lab about the food and the feed that they're feeding them to increase the omega-3 levels so i just find fascinating yeah interesting isn't yeah. it really is um um yeah we've done quite a lot of work on um meat intake um and uh plant-based diets and, and also messaging around that so maybe i'll touch on that a little bit so um, we, we've seen a huge rise in veganism and vegetarianism if we look on social media mm -hmm. or we ask people what their diets are, are like. But um, a colleague of mine at the World Resources Institute actually measured the data on meat sales, um, both internationally and in the UK, and found that overall it hasn't really changed. And it hasn't changed because actually the, the proportion of people that so the absolute number of people who are becoming vegan and vegetarian is very small compared to the, the whole uh, population of meat eaters. But actually, mm. when you break that down by age, um, young adults, so uh, people between the age of 18 and 25, are eating a lot more meat now than they were three years ago by a third. And um, that really think surprises this is being me. driven. Yes, it, we were very surprised too. <laughs> Um, but it, it's hard data, it's sales data um, from a well-known uh, supermarket chain in the UK. And so we think that this is being driven by the, the kind of uh, the gym fitness and, and bodybuilding scene. And um, there seems to be a message that maybe we're all protein um, depleted and protein deficient. Mm. And that may, we think maybe that's driving that. We don't know for sure. Um, uh, well, that was definitely something again, that came up in the conference today as well, is that the research is that one of the barriers is people think they'll be protein deficient on a vegan diet. And because there's not yeah. a specific meat replacement, where they get their protein from can feel a lot like a minefield. And I can understand why, because we know a lot about nutrition. So for us, it's quite easy and simplistic. But for many people knowing about protein combining and you know where you do get your protein from and plant-based foods can feel sometimes overwhelming and the convenience of knowing that you have it in I guess meat is is an easier option as well 
Yeah, and and it's hard to overdose on protein. I mean, the, really, uh, the evidence is it, it's not really dangerous to have high levels of protein, you know, two grams per kilogram body weight, etc. Perfectly safe. Um, but these are calories, and um, the, I guess the bigger problem is that the source of of the protein and the the excess meat that the young adults are eating are things like sausages and burgers. So it's processed food to fill them up quickly rather than good quality meat. Mm. And so there might be detrimental health effects from the quality of what they're eating rather than the actual quantity <laughs> itself. Mm. Um, so um, that's such so, an yeah, interesting that's, observation. Because I, you, yeah, I did think it, that there was more plant-based. I do feel like there's more people adopting to a plant-based diet or aware of a plant-based diet than I would say 40 years ago. But um, from that research, it seems not. Yeah, something that we're looking into is how um, media and social media is now influencing how we eat. So uh, I was surprised to see a restaurant I went to which had a whole section of the menu um, dedicated to being Instagram friendly, to Instagrammable foods. Oh my gosh, is that um, in London? It will be yes, in London. I'll, I'll tell you the name later. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, people cooking things from TikTok. And so I think that we are being uh, influenced by social media, mm. um, both in terms of, I think, the pressure to appear to be eating in a way that's more sustainable, i.e. the vegan and vegetarian diets, but also to have enough protein to be looking a certain way. Mm. Um, and so I think there is a, a dichotomy of, of um, messages out there. And we're looking at messaging as well, whether um, because cutting out whole food groups is not something we would usually recommend, and it's certainly not necessary to have a healthy diet. Mm. And... Um, we think it may be counterproductive in terms of, of shifting people to having healthier diets with less meat. So rather than having a kind of polarised two extremes, you have vegans and then carnivores, it's probably better to shift the whole population to having slightly less meat. So even if it's one day a week, being meat-free, that's far better than having these two extremes. So that's another area we're looking at how to, to really message um uh, dietary advice to have optimal impact uh, for both health and uh, climate change. Yeah, because we do know from research, and I guess it's this is taking out the ethical side, but obviously that weighs a massive impact on why a lot of people choose to go vegan. But we do know from research now that switching more towards a plant-based diet, so having more nuts in your diet, legumes in your diet, which obviously is very heavy in fibre, olive oil, seasonal produce, does have better health outcomes. Um, and sadly, what our shopping baskets make up in the UK is two thirds of it is from processed foods. So we're not really gaining what we need from our diets, from what we're getting from our supermarkets. Um, and I does again, bring it down to choice, doesn't it? We do think we have a lot of choice, but actually when you're put in an environment with limited choice <laughs> and what you can see in your shelves of convenience. And as you just you said, mentioned earlier, you know, when you're hungry and you're in that supermarket, the aisles closest to you is normally what you're kind of grabbing for at that specific moment. So all of these things are so influential yeah. to the decisions that we make regarding our nutrition. Yeah. So um, the 
behaviour change specialist Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize and others have long known that the way we choose our food is through automatic decision making rather than actively being cognitively engaged. And um, food manufacturers have a lot of consumer insights that are then used to um, influence what we buy in the supermarket. So looking at placement, so at the, as you say, at the um, end of the aisle or eye level. Decision fatigue is used as well. So if we're overwhelmed by too many choices, we tend to go back to choosing brands that we know or colours of brands or things that we've bought before. So it encourages mm -hmm. brand loyalty because we just can't be bothered to, <laughs> to read the labels. Um, and um, there's some evidence, there was a lovely paper actually that shows that people with um, higher BMIs are actually more heavily influenced by this type of food marketing. And yet when these people had, um, so these were patients who had uh, bariatric surgery, once they had had their bariatric surgery, they became less um, susceptible to the food marketing. So we're not sure um, really what's driving that. We haven't got to the bottom of that, but it's, it's very interesting, right? It shows you how little we understand about how we ourselves choose food and how much the food industry does know. <laughs> I think that's a scary topic. Um, I spoke to Jenny Rosenberg, who's the head nutritionist at Jamie Oliver on here, about food labeling. Yeah. And um, I think it is really interesting that we all think that we have, again, all this choice. But I think where we are, how how we feel emotionally, you know, where we live, what's on offer to us. Actually, when you kind of look at all of these factors our choice becomes quite limited. You know, if we're working in a really stressful job and you might have half an hour for a lunch break, your choice then becomes very limited on, on the things that you pick to eat for your lunch that day. Um, and so, you know, how can how can we take more charge on that, do you think? Like, what would be the best way for somebody to help optimise their diet um, when they are limited to, to certain choices such as the supermarket or very limited time? Um, or high stress. Well, it sounds like you can buy a fridge to do that for you. I, know. Now. I mean, you, um, you said so many things that I had so many questions <laughs> for, but you were just reeling them off. And I was thinking, I am completely blown away by everything you're saying. I can't oh. believe there's a fridge that can order your so, food. So I guess the first step is acknowledging or realizing that this is happening mm. um, and then retraining your your diet and, and um, your relationship with food, I think, to understanding why you're eating what you're eating, but then understanding what happens when you eat that to your own body, to your own physiology. Then there are certain ways to proactively avoid eating in a bad way. So quite often there are prompts or triggers that would make us eat in a certain way so or a certain type of food. So trying to avoid those prompts um, and just being a bit more kind of mindful about what we're eating as well. Mm. Um, the um, behavioural um, long-term approaches to retraining uh, the way we eat, I think, are, are probably one of the most successful ways to uh, improve our diets. And I mentioned a couple only, only because those are the only ones I've heard of, Noom and Second Nature. 
um, and I've seen really good results with those. I'm sure there are others as well. So just divulging um, into that, that uses neurologistic programming, which is NLP, and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is CBT, within these apps to help. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't used them, um, but I, I understand they use a, a combination of the technology and some coaching to uh, really retrain people's diets. And it's not a quick fix. It's a long term change and they don't have any exclusions or calorie counting uh, or anything like that. I th- and even the, the calorie. Well, I think that's fantastic because I'm not sure whether you agree with this or disagree with this, but I... I disagree with the Weight Watchers approach that is used on the NHS because the food that is given to me to them and the individuals that are part of it, it doesn't make any sense in my mind. It all works on calories, but you could have a load of sugar, but that's still a low calorie. And the the actual nutrition density of the diet is quite poor. It's all quite fast food, packaged, it's not fresh. Um, and the actual nutritional density is very poor. But the reasons I think why it's done so well in studies is because you have that group support. And I think that's where, in my opinion, we can draw a lot of data from that and say, actually, well, it's more of the, the group support, knowing that you're not doing it on your own, where these kind of apps can become really helpful to people to actually show them that they've got something there to help them on their way. I think when people feel on their own, it can feel quite daunting and overwhelming, especially if you've got a busy life, to try and implement these changes. And that's where success rates may not be as as great. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head for most of these lifestyle changes. We actually need somebody to hold our hand to, to help us to do that or to hold us accountable. And that's why Weight Watchers works, because you're accountable at your weekly weigh-in and you have um, peer support. Um, and things like Alcoholics Anonymous, same reason you have a sponsor who holds you accountable. And actually, it's that hand-holding and somebody feeling that somebody cares about you enough to for you to make that change. Mm. Um, and so there are several models like that. And, um, and some of this technology that doesn't have that human element, it's, you know, they can only be successful to a certain extent. You do need the, the human element to to really drive the change as much as it will go so i think the future will see a combination of of some of these things so when we talk about personalized nutrition you can imagine a future where there's an algorithm or or some other way to combine all of the the feedback from yourself be it from blood tests from some of these the technology that measures uh, what you're eating when you're eating your uh, blood glucose level and that uh, combines that with, say, your microbiome, your nutrigenomics, possibly, if we have more data on that, and then provides an ideal eating pattern for you, not a diet, uh, but you know, telling you when, when it's optimal for you to eat. Uh, maybe it's optimal for you to eat less carbs or more carbs and, and really giving you, taking also into account some of the psychological aspects. So is it important to you? Um, are you ready to change and what types of uh, um, change, uh, behavioral change are you more likely to respond to? So putting all of that into one algorithm and then having a human, uh, be a nutritionist or a virtual coach or somebody on a VR or AR <laughs> um, device actually helping you through those changes 
So I guess that's the future that I hope we have. I mean, I that would be fun. I would love to have a fridge that I could come home to and just magically have food in it. <laughs> that is my goal in life is to have that. Um, but I think it's it's such a fascinating area and also such a broad area as well. I think when I said we might, we'll do a podcast on personal nutrition, I just I didn't actually know where we were going to start and end because again, it's it is so broad. But for somebody listening to this. I'd love for you as a, as a, as a doctor, and I, I'm very happy to, to say my view in it as well, about um, how can people be aware of fads that are being sold or maybe that they're going to spend hundreds or sometimes even thousands of pounds on a product that doesn't have evidence behind them? How can people navigate what's what's true and what's not? Yeah, it's difficult at the moment because there isn't regulation of many of these um, products and um claims that are out there um, and there isn't even a lot of research in, in some of these areas and so we're still at the early stages. Um, I guess going to see a qualified nutritionist who would be familiar with the data is, is the best way. Obviously your GP or doctor can give you some high level advice but on the whole for personalised nutrition it would be a nutritionist mm. who would need to provide that. and. Um, yeah, be careful. I, I wouldn't recommend spending a lot of money on any particular tool at this stage. Um, obviously, devices that you have in your home, etc. They are, you know, they may be fun and, and they may work for some people. But things like um, nutritional profiling, nutrigenome, etc. Those are for um, people who can. Uh, access those with support either from a nutritionist or a doctor rather than just buying those and using them at home by themselves and what do you think about 20 dna 23 and me and a circle and there's a few other ones where you send off i think it's a saliva and it comes back with yeah, kind of your full is. profile of what you should and shouldn't be eating and your risks yeah have you not tried that either sarah i have tried it but i'd love to know what you think about it <laughs> Um, so, um, uh, so they actually went through the legal challenge that we were just talking about. So, you know, when, when does it become medical advice and when does it need approval for them to be giving this advice? So again, there are some things you learn from there. So, you know, there are a few traits that I received from 23andMe that I actually knew already. I mean, there was mm -hmm. nothing surprising there. Um, so I would say it's more, at this stage, it's more fun than useful. Um, it's not harmful from a nutritional perspective, it's not harmful, but um, some of the medical information does need uh, doctors to explain the results and interpret the results. Mm. Um, now 23andMe does have a, um, uh, a kind of disclaimer and I believe there is some counseling offered, but I'm not sure if all of the others do. Yeah, I tried. How did you find it? Did you find it useful? I, I think I've done both of them. I did a new one called Circle, which was, it, when it told me about my personality traits and my achievements, I just thought, how can it tell me that from a saliva sample? I was kind of blown away. I think the, the thing I was really worried about, and, and this is quite a, a personal story, which I'm happy to share. I was actually, it's not that personal. I was sat in um, uh hospital when I received the results and I was actually there because I went and had my moles checked and they said actually 
we're not sure on some of them and we need you to come in. So I'm sat in hospital and then I get this thing through and it's gone skin cancer risk. And you know, and you're thinking, I'm not sure I'm quite prepared to actually open this. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there is a lot yeah. of anxiety that can come along with it. I mean, very luckily I had no risk at all in anything. Um, apart from um, actually gaining weight very quickly, which is the opposite to what I've ever been. I've actually, I've actually been the opposite way. So there were some things that I actually had to think, well, that's not how my body works. I think I actually have a very fast me- metabolic rate. So there's a few things where I wasn't sure how true it was. Um, but I did, I did find it really interesting. I mean, it's uh, I think everyone likes reading about themselves in some t- shape or form. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. how much evidence was behind it, I still wasn't, you know, 100% sure on. Yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with Circle, but that type of um, medical information that is about risk of a serious condition mm. would really not be given to you in your own home. It should be given to you by a medical professional or with some type of counselling or explanation because it's very easy to misinterpret that uh, information exactly Um, so so um, the medical information I think is is separate Mm. the nutritional information it can be fun I think some of them also um, tell you about your muscle composition yeah and tell you which exercises are preferable so um, fast twitch or slow twitch and um, and they told me I should be quite big built according to my muscle fiber type which you're not which at is. all I mean they told me I was going to be overweight but <laughs> so yeah that um I do I do find they are fun I say they are fun at the moment I guess it's another new area isn't it I think there is so much at the moment that's coming out I mean I feel yeah. like I'm normally up to speed and a lot of things and half the things you've mentioned today I've never heard of um which is really interesting. So I'm going to go and I'm definitely going to go and look them up. Well, well, I have to give credit to some of my uh, colleagues who I work with who are experts in that area. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's why I know a lot about them. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fantastic. And it is definitely a new era because I definitely agree with you as well that I'm probably a majority of people that one size doesn't fit all. And it can be very hard sometimes to, you know, reference the Eat Well guide and say this is how every single person should be eating because I think actually it's yeah. very individual to everyone's needs um, and what they what they can eat, actually, what's on offer to them. So I think that is a, is a really, really broadening area. And I hope there's a lot more research coming out. As you said, the microbiome is probably one of the most researched areas of them all. Um, and that has so many other factors connected to it, whereas it's not just our weight, it's our mental health as well, which is a very big passionate area of mine. Um, but for you, you know, where do you see your kind of research going more in towards, obviously you cover so much of it, but where do you, where do you see yourself being more pulled into? Um, so, uh, if we if we can really figure out how to uh, successfully implement personalized nutrition, we can then expand that to the whole population level. I, I would say, on the whole, public health has not done a good job of. Um, <laughs> that, I say, similarly, <laughs> I'm laughing inside. We've ripped done 
a very bad job at helping people to eat healthily and to live healthier lifestyles. And so we haven't managed at population level. And so clearly we need to use a different approach, maybe using a personal approach to really drill down. I think if we can personalize it such that um, we, people are receiving more um, individual feedback, that's likely to lead to more sustained change, which can then be mm. um, rolled out at population level. Another area I'm very interested in is in the behaviour change space and the um, trying to use the food industry's own consumer insights against them. Um, mm. <laughs> so how to reverse what has been used by the industry to help people to make better choices. Um, and then this algorithm that I mentioned earlier, which is imaginary, by the way, <laughs> we don't have an algorithm yet that plugs in all of the different personalised nutrition initiatives but I don't think it's too far down the line I think we're talking you know a handful of years rather than you know, a decade so I'd hope to be involved in that in the future as well what about yourself what do you see I find nutrition well obviously a very interesting area it's why I'm in it but I think the reason why I got into it for, was for so many different reasons was the link between mental health and nutrition for me was huge for an industry that suffered with it tremendously and um, actually was the one the one factor that no one took any notice of and it was the one that everyone really needed to mm -hmm. kind of stand up and take note of. But I do see in that very short space of time the real change in it. And I know we're talking about these new devices and this new concept of, you know, looking at personalised nutrition on a on a whether it's a global scale or whether it's just the you know the UK population but I think it will get there but I think I do feel there's a, a long way to go because the public health recommendations now are still very broad um in my yeah. opinion and they're not very they're not they don't talk about individual level at all it's not an acknowledgement um and so I think that would be a first step for public health thinking to actually talk about people on their own on, on as an individual as opposed to the general population and I did speak um to a few people about the BMI when that was all coming out and it's been a huge debate going on for many years um and still many people in public health do say it's a very good tool and a very use of measure because it's about the general population but when we're talking about personalized nutrition there isn't that overall view of actually how can we treat everyone so it is a very hard I do, I do see it to be a very hard way to actually get the UK government to to integrate personalised nutrition. I just can't see how, I can't see yet how they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's a disconnect between what is useful at population level and what's useful to tell individuals. Mm. And BMI is a very good example of mm. that um, because there is... So on average, it's a use, if you use it as an average, it's useful. But if you tell an individual your BMI is X, then there are so many other factors to take into account, such as their muscle mass um, and where their body fat distribution is. And so there are other measures, um, such as waist circumference, but BMI is used because it's the easiest to self-report. Um, it doesn't need exactly. measurement. Most people know their weight and their height. Yeah. They wouldn't necessarily accurately know their waist circumference or, or other measures. Mm. So at the moment, um, 
there are obviously lots of discussions about developing better measures mm. and um, with all this new technology I certainly <laughs> hope there'll be some better measure than BMI. Yeah absolutely it's um, just bringing that isn't it to the population level I think that's the real that's the real barrier. <laughs> yeah we're on it we're on it <laughs> get onto it soon you will but it's so interesting and it's it's it's, I and I love how nutrition is now at the forefront of so many discussions for me I think that's one of the most exciting elements is that now people are talking about it people are interested in it it's not just if you're studying nutrition you know everybody is writing about nutrition and interesting about it and it's having more of a stronger voice and a purpose and I think that's that's a really exciting area yeah, and moving away from some of the kind of guilt and stigma, which is just all counterproductive. Mm, so counterproductive. And, um, yeah, instead facilitating people to maintain a healthy weight. Yeah, absolutely. And so lastly, can I ask you, what? how do you live well and be well? I like to ask all my guests who come on here. And for you, Kothal, how do you live well and be well? Oh, gosh. Do you want the real answer? I want the real, I want the <laughs> real, real answer. Okay, so um, I have been vegan for many years. And so um, I don't, you don't need to be vegan to be healthy. And if you're vegan, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy. But what it has meant is that um, uh, when I became vegan, I, even outside of my work, I did a lot of my own research about healthy foods. And um, so that, have always been interested in nutrition and food um, and how to eat well. Um, and I'm also lucky enough to enjoy exercise. And so I do, I've always exercised. I've never been without exercise. And um, um, I'm lucky that many of my, most of the people I um, work with and socialize with have very similar interests. And so, uh, as you know, we all affect each other's um, lifestyle behaviors as well so um, I'm very fortunate in that regard Um, and obviously um, other areas like uh, tobacco to avoid tobacco I guess another recommendation Um, and clearly mental health is another as you as you mentioned it's a very important area too that that links in with other things we do in our in our daily life Mm. so our work, our diets, etc. So, really being uh, kind of quite cognizant of, of what impacts our mental health and how to um, improve our mental well-being and being proactive about that as well, rather than um, reactive. Um, so, yeah, that's <laughs> that's supposed to what I do. I love that all of your studies have also massively influenced how you live well and be well because you named all the big behavioral factors there that really affect how how we feel and our house so you are generally living well and being well which is which is fantastic thank you I hope so and so for anyone who's found and I know lots of people found this incredibly interesting today where can they find your Instagram I know you're also huge on Clubhouse which I've been very lucky and privileged to be a guest on as well would you be able to give all of your yeah. handles as well so we can find more about you sure so um most of them are dr kotha hajat so on instagram dr kotha hajat also on twitter dr kotha hajat 
please do join us at Clubhouse at the Human Behaviour Club. Um, we have around 600,000 followers now. Um, and thank you for coming on to our, our show as well. So, Anne, that was very fun. That was on mental health. Awesome. And that was um, the nice chat that we had. Um, that was my first uh, ever Clubhouse. Oh, well, <laughs> it was a really good chat. And um, uh, so we discuss all of these topics on Clubhouse and they're available as a podcast on Spotify and Anchor. So if you search on my name on Spotify, you should find me. Amazing. And uh, we've had some uh, very interesting, um, um, some amazing speakers like yourself and some really interesting chats around diet, mental health, um, behavior change. Um, we had the Game Changers, some of the cast from the Game Changers movie on. We've had um, behavioral scientists. We've had a behavioral scientist who's a comedian looking at how laughter is the best medicine. So yeah, a full range of, of uh, topics. Fantastic. I love Clubhouse. So if no one's listened to it yet, I've got the app. I actively encourage you to try and become a member and join them because they're a great one that you can just pop into. <laughs> and uh, I was very honoured to be able to come on to yours. Thank you. So I'll have to get you on to our, we have a new one on Airtime. I don't know if people are familiar with the, the platform Airtime. No. Which is a bit like Clubhouse with visuals. So people can actually see you and you can share videos and um, content. So you are like let's do another session lady, then. aren't you? You like you just know all of the new things that are coming out, and I have no idea of them. I feel so behind in the times. <laughs> well, it's all part of communicating about health. Very true. Very well. That's how that's how public health makes its impact. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Thank you so much for coming on to Live Well VR today. Thank you for inviting me. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And I learned a lot in today's episode. If you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it, please do leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. It means a lot to see that you guys are enjoying it. And until next week, I hope you will live well and be well. Be well.